Amen and amen. Well, we are Christians, and to be a Christian means that we follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes it can be easy reading the Bible to get lost in the trees, so to speak, and and not see the forest, not see the big point. And Daniel 11 is one of those chapters that it could be easy to get lost in because of all the details and the things that are hard to understand. And so I just want to start by just reminding us that the point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the Bible is um, what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And therefore, um, Jesus answers the most important questions in life. Uh, What do I do with my guilt? Jesus says, I am the way to be rid of your guilt. Uh, The second most important question is, what is my goal in life? And Jesus says, I am the truth about what life is supposed to look like, uh, how you're supposed to live, what you were created for. And then finally, uh, the question of, What is my ultimate good? What will truly satisfy me? And Jesus says, I am the life. I am the one, the only one who can satisfy your soul. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, I am everything you need and everything you desire. And I am the only way that anyone will ever be reconciled to God. And so when we read the Bible, we don't want to miss Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees knew the Old Testament. And Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and they testify about me, but you're unwilling to come to me for life. They read the Bible, but they missed Jesus. And so if we read the Bible and we miss Jesus, then we miss the whole point of the Bible. And so I just want to remind us of that as we go through this, because it's a long chapter, and we're only going to be able to hit on some of the things that are said here. But I want to encourage us in various ways from Daniel 11, and I want to most of all, encourage us with regard to our faith in Jesus. So if you haven't already and you have a Bible or access to a Bible, please turn to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is in the midst of a book that is very heavy on predictive prophecy and what we um, also like to call eschatology in, in terms of that which points toward the end of the world. Uh, the reality is God has told us the future. And the question is, why has God told us the future? He's told us the future because in order to live well now, you need to live in light of the future. And a great example of that is just recently, um, there have been some documentaries produced on Netflix um, about Jeffrey Dahmer. And most of us are familiar with him. He was uh, a murderer in time past, a very infamous murderer. And it's interesting, according to his own testimony, he would say that he trusted Christ while he was in prison. And his last interview and, uh, that he did was, I think, a Dateline interview. And he said this, if a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution as truth, that we all just came from the slime. When we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So at that point, he says, you know what? Uh, My life is a reflection of 
what happens when you don't believe what God says about the future, that there is a God, that we will stand before him one day, and that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. He says, if you believe in evolution and you believe that you know, there's nothing beyond this life, then why live any other way than what you feel like living? And so knowing the future and believing what God says about the future does impact how we live our lives today. And it's very, very important that we realize that. And so even though eschatology and prophecy can be very difficult, it has a very important role to play in our lives. It is meant to shape what we do today in light of the future. And another important part um, to keep in mind with regard to how God often works is he often uses what I call foreshadowing. I've entitled the title, if you've seen the notes, the foreshadowing of the end. God often uses foreshadowing. He gives a, a picture of future things in past things. Before Jesus came, he was foreshadowed in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Uh, Sean read about Abraham earlier. Uh, at one point, God tells Abraham to take his son and offer him on an altar. And then God doesn't have him kill his son, but uh, substitutes a ram in his place. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus becoming our substitute on the cross. Well, in the same way, with regard to prophecy in the future, God foreshadows things in history that ultimately point to the end of the world and what's going to happen uh, before Jesus comes back. And I believe that's what we have in Genesis, excuse me, uh, Daniel chapter 11. Uh, the book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God. And the first six chapters are about stories that illustrate God's sovereignty. The last six chapters are about prophecy, visions that Daniel had that talk about the future. And together they're meant to encourage all those who are trusting God to not stop trusting God when things get difficult. You've got the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. But you've also got stories about Nebuchadnezzar becoming like an animal and the handwriting on the wall, which is God's sovereignty over the nations as well as his protection of his people. And it's all meant to prepare us for the visions of the future that we find in the latter part of the book that can be very disturbing. And God is uh, giving his people a reason to trust him. And so I'm going to read uh, through this chapter section by section because it's so long. But I just want to introduce you to what's going on in this section. In the very first part of the chapter, uh, what we have here is um, an explanation of how um, the Medo-Persian Empire failed to, fa fell to the Greek Empire, how Alexander the Great conquered that kingdom. And then his kingdom was broke up into four kingdoms, and two of those kingdoms became really dominant, and they became the kingdoms referred to in this chapter as the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south and they're north and south of Israel. And so you've got the king kingdom of the north, which is the Seleucid Empire up there on the uh, uh, map there. Um, 
centered in Syria, and then you've got the Kingdom of the South, which is the Ptolemaic Empire, uh, which is uh, centered in Egypt. And right in the middle of the two of them, you see Jerusalem, Israel, was right in between the two of these kingdoms. So the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south are in reference to the land of the people of God. And so I just want to give that little introduction as we work our way through this chapter because what's going to be talked about in this chapter is 400 years of world history. That, are, that God gave to his people to encourage them to hold on to the truth, to hold on to his promises, even though things were going to get very, very difficult. So let me read for us um, the first 19 verses, and then we'll talk a little bit about it and try to make some application. In the first four verses, we have a discussion of the, the uh, rise of Alexander the Great. It says in verse 1, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. This is the angel speaking. This is a continuation of chapter um, 10. He goes on in verse 2 and says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then it goes on to talk about the conflict between the king of the south and the king of the north. So in verse 5 it says, Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in. And the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former, When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. Yet he will not prevail, for the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. 
Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Again, this isn't an easy chapter to go through, and yet it's a chapter that describes what happens between the 4th century B.C. and the 1st century B.C., before the time and the coming of Christ. It's called the intertestamental period, the time uh, after the writing of the last book in the Old Testament and before the writing of the first book in the New Testament. And so we have a discussion of Alexander the Great. We have a discussion of the king of the south, which is uh, Ptolemy I and his uh, successors, uh, and the king of the north, which was Seleucus and his successors. And so that's what's going on here. And what we have is an account of world history. And so the question is, uh, why is God giving us all this uh, detail? See if this will work for me. Let's see. Maybe not. Thank you, Claudia. The first point I want to just highlight is, and we can't spend a lot of time on any of these sections, but God has taken care of the details of what's going to happen in history. And He's done that so that the result will be for His people that we can focus on what he's told us to do. He's told us to trust him, to trust his promises, and he's told us to obey his word, to love as he calls us to obey. Thank you. And so when we think about how this passage that we just read starts off in verse 2, the angel says, now I will tell you the truth. And in this case, truth means I'll tell you What is about to happen? I'm going to tell you the truth about this portion of world history. And the reality is, people look at Daniel chapter 11, and they see how detailed it is, and then they look at what actually happened in world history, and they understand what's being talked about here. They understand who the king of the north is and who the king of the south is, and they understand what's going on, and they look at it and they say, wow, This could only have been been written after the fact. There's no way anyone could have written this um, beforehand. That's why Calvin, John Calvin, would say, uh, based on this passage, thus the faithful have no reason for doubting that God has spoken. When the angel predicts the future so exactly and so openly narrates it as if a matter of history. That's the way unbelievers read this passage. They say, uh, this must have been history. 
because it's so accurate. It tells us exactly the way things played out. But as believers in God's word, we know it is truly God's word. And we know that he foretold the future before it happened. But he didn't do it for curiosity's sake. He did it so that we might know that he is in control. And that however things might go, however dark it might be, we're not to focus on the details per se, especially in, in light of our tendency to worry and to be anxious. We're trying to, we're just, we're so concerned about the details of what's going to happen. What if this plays out this way? Or what if this plays out this way? And we're all that way. We're tempted to focus on the details of the future. And God says, I've got all the details of the, of the future ordained. You don't have to worry about that. What you need to focus on is focus on what I've called you to trust me for. Focus on what I've called you to do in in loving people. And so that's why we have passages like what we see in Matthew 6, where it says that at the end of this discussion of not worrying because God is able to feed the birds, he's able to clothe the flowers, so you don't need to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, but what does he tell us to do? He says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, whatever it is we might be concerned about, whatever it is we might need. And he says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about the details of tomorrow. Our focus is to be on the fact that my father who loves me has already mapped out the details of tomorrow. And it may be hard. It might be hard. But my focus needs to be on his kingdom. What has he promised me? And that's what it means. What has he promised me? All those who are a part of his kingdom, who submit to King Jesus. And then his righteousness. How does he call me to live in light of whatever tomorrow might hold? whatever today might hold. And so it's kind of like um, I've told this story before about a true incident back in Connecticut back in 1780 uh, when there was a session of the state legislature going on and in the middle of the day, the skies became darkened. And at that time, people were very aware of the um, truth of the coming of Christ. And a lot of them thought Jesus was coming back right then. And one man stood up and said, he was actually the Speaker of the House in Connecticut, and he said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. I just want to focus on what he said. He's basically saying whether or not Jesus is coming back right now or not, I want to be focused on my duty. Now, I don't know what he meant in his own mind, but translating that into what the Bible would say our duty is, what God calls us to do, he calls us to trust him according to his promises. He calls us to obey him according to his commands. And so whether Jesus is coming back this afternoon or not, my focus is on trusting God and living to please him in light of his word. Regardless of what tomorrow holds in my life, I can't predict that. I can't control that. God is in control of that. But he says, that's not your job. You're not God. You can't bear the weight of working on all the details of tomorrow. Trust me. Trust me. 
And that's where the peace of God comes in. That's where our peace comes from. And so that's the first thing, first encouragement from this chapter, I think, in light of this detailed prophecy, is that God wants us just to rest in his ordaining and knowledge of the future and to focus on what he's told us to trust him for and told us to do. Let's go on to uh, verse 20. It says in verse 20, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time." Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. That is all speaking about Antiochus IV, who is also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who uh, done great harm to the Jewish people. And actually the next section, beginning in verse 29, talks about the abomination of desolation, which is what Jesus refers to in Matthew 24. So in verse 29, it says, At the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many yet they will fall by sword and by flame by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is, it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous, thing, monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, 
nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So a lot of this chapter is a conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south, the king of Syria and the king of Egypt. And yet you've got uh, little Israel and Jerusalem in the middle of them. And a lot of the conflict that goes on here results in different things happening to Israel in light of whether the king of the north wins or the king of the south wins. And at one point, the king of the north uh, is upset about what's going on with his um, wars for the king of the south, and he basically takes it out on Israel. And he shows up in Jerusalem, and he... Um, sacrifices unclean animals on the altar in Jerusalem. And at one point he stops the sacrifices in Jerusalem, which ultimately results in the Maccabean revolt, which started in 167 BC. And so that's what's taking place here in this chapter. And so obviously I can't go into all the details, but let me just try to help us think about some of the implications of what's taking place here. This is kind of... Uh, conflict on an international scale, but the reality is it all flows out of the same root. Whether it's the conflict between two individual people or two nations, it comes from the same root. And human conflict is always the fruit of idol worship. It's interesting in verses 36 through 39, it talks about how the king of the north, Antiochus, is going to exalt himself above every god, He will show no regard for uh, the gods of his fathers, and yet he will honor a god of fortresses, which is a a way of saying in one sense he's not going to worship the idols that his forefathers worshipped, but he's going to worship a new kind of idol. And the implication seems to be he's going to worship basically himself. He's going to worship a god of fortresses, a god of military might, in fact, his own military might. And he's going to try to exert his will over the people of God in Israel. And so ultimately, the the question is, why is he doing this? Well, he's doing what he's doing on an international scale for the same reason that we do what we do on an individual or very personal scale. We want what we want. And James 4 tells us that this is the real uh, root of all quarrels, whether they're very personal or international. James says in verse 1 of James 4, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. War is just murder on an, an international scale. And so James is telling us that Conflict comes from what he calls lust or desires or what I want. That's in conflict with what someone else wants. And therefore, we go to war, either one-on-one or nation against nation. Why is Russia uh, and Ukraine in their conflict? 
because of what James says in James chapter 4. Ultimately, it's because of what one wants and what the other one doesn't want them to have one way or the other. Uh, Some of you might be uh, football uh, enthusiasts. I follow football because I played football. And there's a story going on right now about one of the quarterbacks named Tom Brady and his wife are getting a a divorce. And she's actually a a supermodel. He's a a very, um, um, you could say, um, successful quarterback. And... They're going through a divorce, and the wife said at one point, you know, I've basically given up my career so that Tom could have success in his job. Now I want him just to retire so I can have my career. So what's the the conflict? Uh, Tom wants to continue playing football. Uh, His wife doesn't want him to because she wants to do something different. You've got two... Uh, people in conflict over what they want, and neither one of them, as best I understand it, are asking the question, what does God want? What does God want from our marriage? What does God want from me personally? How am I to respond to the fact that I have wants that my husband doesn't have or that my wife doesn't have? How does God call me to handle this? As far as I know, they're not believers, and so they're not handling it uh, from that perspective, but it's it's very important to understand that if we think about our own lives and we wonder, why is there conflict in my relationships? Well, the Bible says because there's a clash of what I want versus what someone else wants. And ultimately, the answer is to submit ourselves to what God wants. It's not that one gets the victory over the other. It's that both are submitted to God, that God gets the victory in the relationship. So one encouragement is just to realize that what's going on on a grand scale in chapter 11 happens in our lives all the time. Uh, The third uh, encouragement that I just want to draw out of this uh, as well is that the light of faith shines brightest in the darkness. If you look at verse 32, obviously things are not uh, easy for the people of God in Israel in light of what Antiochus Epiphanes is doing. And it says, the people of God who know, excuse me, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. The implication is the knowledge of the truth, believing the truth, being truly the people of God will not shield us from suffering and even death. Uh, We might very well have to suffer and even die for the name of Christ. And why would God allow that to happen? Because the light of our faith in what God has promised us through Jesus shines brightly when we're willing to hold on to it, even when we have to suffer for it, even when it costs us our lives. It's easy to say, I'm trusting Jesus when everything's great. But if someone is torturing me or if someone is going to kill me, that's when the rubber really meets the road in terms of whether or not I really believe that that Jesus is the treasure, that he is the pearl of great price, that I'm willing to sell everything in order to have him. I'm willing to lose everything in order to have him. That brings him glory. 
And it's important in light of that. In Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk talks about um, the fact that he knows um, that the land of Israel is going to be invaded at that time. And he says this, I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And then he says, uh, this is what I have to keep in mind as I live in the land of though. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. When it says he makes my feet like hind's feet to walk on high places, he means he enables me to traverse the rocky terrain and not fall and die. He enables me to go through difficult circumstances. And Habakkuk says, though everything is taken away from me, yet I will praise him, I will trust him, I believe that his promises are true. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma, back when it was called Burma, and uh, he was in jail at one point. His, his ankles were weighted to the ground with 32 pounds of chains, and a fellow prisoner in the jail said to him, uh, what about that prospect of the conversion of the heathen now? Because you're chained, you're in jail, you know, so what? You came over here for nothing, right? And Adoniram Judson said, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. He said, nothing's changed. Yes, I'm in jail. Yes, it's dark. Yes, it's hard. But God hasn't changed. His promises haven't changed. And that was a light in the darkness to that other prisoner that said, I'm trusting in the promises of God. I'm not trusting in my circumstances. God has all these things under control. My focus is on what he's promised me and what he's told me to do. I'm keeping my focus on what I need to keep my focus on. The fourth encouragement is, and it's closely related to what I just said, is that we love others best when we love God most. This is very, very important. We love others best when we love God most. It says in verse 33, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now think about that. That was a prophecy at the time it was given to the people of God saying, some of you will be killed with a sword. Some of you will die by the flame. And it will be those who are truly the people of God. And why is that important? Why would God put his people through that? There's all kinds of reasons, but I just want to focus on one. Because if we're praying, Lord, I want to love the people around me that do not know you. And Linda prayed about that this morning. I want to love the people around me that do not know you. How do we testify that our faith is real? We're willing to suffer and die for Jesus. It says in Matthew 26, 
Uh, Dan actually mentioned this earlier as well. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed three different times, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And obviously God said, no, it's not possible. And so Jesus went forward and he did the most loving thing that's, in ever, that's ever been done. He died on the cross. And so he was willing to suffer and die in order to love. And he says that we are to follow him in that. We're to be willing to suffer and die in order to love, in order to rescue people from their sin. Now, we're not the Savior, but being willing to suffer and die gives understanding to others. It is a testimony to the reality of our faith. Uh, there's a, a story about 40 martyrs. You may have heard, we've talked about it before in the past, but the 40 martyrs of Sebast, I think that's how you pronounce that. It's about uh, 40 Roman soldiers who were told to deny Christ, and they refused to, and so they were led out upon the ice, uh, this frozen lake in wintertime, and they were stripped of their clothes and they were told you either deny Christ and worship the emperor or you die on this frozen lake. And they huddled together and they sang praise to Jesus. And all of them died one by one. And then finally there was one left and he gave in and he ran off the ice and warmed up by the fire. And there was a soldier watching all this. And when he saw that man leave, he saw the testimony of the 39 that had died and he believed in Jesus and he took off his clothes, he went on the ice and he died. And there were 40 in the end who died for the sake of Christ. That soldier who wasn't a believer watched those who were, that were willing to suffer and die for Christ and he became a believer. God does that. He doesn't do that for every Christian, not every Christian has to suffer and die that way. But in principle, we all have to suffer and die. In principle, we all have to embrace the fact that we're called to be willing to suffer and die, that others might know that Jesus is the treasure that they're looking for. And we found it. He's the pearl of great price. Well, let me go on to the last um, part that we find here and it says in verse um, 30, let's see, verse 40. We're up to 40, right? I think we're up to 40. He says, At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many." He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. 
Now, some people think this is still talking about Antiochus IV, uh, who basically tried to destroy the religion of Israel. Some think this refers to his successors. Some think it actually refers to Rome, who conquered the Seleucid kingdom and ultimately conquered the Egyptian kingdom. Others think it points way forward to the last days, to the Antichrist. And that's the way I look at it, because I believe this chapter is a foreshadowing of indeed what happened in 70 AD, but even beyond that to what what is going to happen in the end. Um, Which, as it talks about the fact in verse 40, at the end, the king of the south will do this. And then in verse 45, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I believe this doesn't simply refer to what happened in the past, but also points to what is going to happen in the future. Part of it is because of what we find in the New Testament that sounds very similar to what we find here in this chapter with regard to this one who's going to come and exalt himself above God. And that's what it says in Daniel chapter 11. The same kind of thing is said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 when Paul is talking about what's going to happen in the end where it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, just like we see in Daniel chapter 11, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know that what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So in Daniel, this one that's being spoken of, it is said that he will come to his end, meaning he will have grand designs and he will think of himself as living forever and doing what he's doing forever and conquering the people of God and destroying them, but he will not succeed and he will be brought to an end. And 2 Thessalonians 2, I believe, pictures the ultimate fulfillment of what we find in Daniel chapter 11, where there will be someone who arises in history called the man of lawlessness, lawlessness in the sense he does what he wants to do, he exalts himself above every other God, he is his own God, and Jesus is going to come back and destroy him, bring him to an end, and then usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is essentially going to do uh, what uh, I've spoken of before. I've told you the story about the missionary 
who was asked by um, one of his students, when Jesus comes back and there is a shout, what is the shout? What is being shouted at that point? And obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us, but the missionary said, I think he's going to shout, enough. And he went on to say, he will shout, enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease, enough time, enough. He's going to bring an end to evil and all the suffering it brings. The whole passage is about all the suffering that results from evil men who want to assert their will upon others, whether that's on a personal level or on an international level. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to, going to destroy the ultimate personification of evil and he's going to deliver the world from evil and suffering. He's going to say enough. That it's not going to go on forever. And that's our hope as Christians is that it's not going to go on forever. That Jesus came that he might not only save us as individuals but that he might reconcile the whole world to himself and and bring in heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is not here and now. And things may get a lot harder in our country in the days to come. They might feel a lot like Daniel 11, where we see desecration after desecration after desecration. And we see people trying to snuff out the people of God. And yet Jesus says, I will bring an end to that when the time is right. And you can trust me that I will make sure I usher you into the kingdom that is to come. And so the question is, how does all this apply to us now? Well, obviously, God calls us on an individual scale to ask ourselves, are there conflict in our lives? And how are we handling that conflict Uh, Where am I asserting my will in a way that isn't pleasing to the Lord? And how do I need to submit my will to God's will? Where are there situations in my life where I'm being challenged with regard to whether or not I'm going to actually suffer for Christ? Um, Am I going to be tempted to shut my mouth and not let people know I'm a Christian? Am I going to be tempted not to do the right thing because I might lose something, a relationship or a job or whatever it might be, am I willing to lose and die and suffer to say to people that do not know Christ, I have found the Christ. I have found the treasure that will satisfy your soul and I'll prove it because I'm willing to die. I'm willing to lose my relationship. I'm willing to lose my job. I'm willing to lose my status. I'm willing to lose because I'm I've gained everything already in Jesus. He's promised me the universe. And I can trust him if I have to lose something now. And so we need to pray as Christians that God would give us grace to trust his promises and obey his word and focus on that. Um, We can't get caught up in all the things that are going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen on in November with the election. A lot of people are putting a lot of stakes on things happening through the election that they want to see happen. What if if it doesn't happen? 
What if things just continue to get worse one way or the other? The Bible says rejoice always. How do you rejoice always? Well, you have to believe the promises of God, and you have to testify to that. But be careful of being complaining Christians that are just complaining about the way things are, and we're not testifying to the promises of God in the darkness. Our country is dark in a lot of ways. There are things going on in this country that we never imagined would take place. But God's still in charge, and he's in charge of the details, and he wants us to be a light in the darkness. And that light is, you know what? I found what I need in Jesus, and he is going to carry me through. Have you found him to be who he says he is? Do you know that he's an able and willing Savior for you, just like he is for me? That's what God calls us to as Christians in light of these kinds of passages. But if we're not a Christian, what does God call you to? He calls you to repent and believe. He calls you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and to know that the truth about the future is meant to help us to see our need for a Savior. If he really is the Lord of all, and there really is life after death, and we really are accountable, then Jeffrey Dahmer came to see the truth, that he was someone created in the image of God who was going to stand before God and give an account for everything he did, and his only hope was a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you'd help us as we seek to make sense in our own hearts and lives. Uh, what we see in your word is a very long passage, very complex passage, and we can only stretch the surface in terms of all that's there. And yet I pray that we would not miss you, Lord Jesus, in it all, that we would not miss the encouragements that are there for us to trust you, to trust your promises, and to live to obey your commands, even in the darkest hours because you have ordained the details and you've promised to be with us and to never leave us nor forsake us. So please help us as we seek to honor you and to be light in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.